0: Welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer and I'm here with my co-host J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G.
1: Hey there, Kev. How are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm feeling fit as a fiddle, which is more than I can say about protagonists in three of our stories.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, that's definitely something we're going to be digging into as we we get through this. Um, So this week, as we said last week, we are going to be doing four short stories rather than a main ranger or a major release. So that means we're going to be doing a little bit of a mopping up exercise and we are going to be covering Spider Shadow, Urgent Calls, Urban Myths and Mission of the Virons. Just an excuse to cover a few short little bites of Doctor Who which we might otherwise not get to. So um, yeah, let's kick off with Spider Shadow first off. Kev, would you care to give us a quick summary?
0: I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is going to be the hardest one to summarize, but essentially, spider Shadow is a to- story told out of order where these ca- uh, characters, princesses, Louise and Allison, are stuck in a time loop at a royal ball, and when the Doctor arrives, the time loop gets even stranger as events start happening out of sequence, both for the listener, for the Doctor, and for the characters involved, meaning we get sort of snippets as things sort of go herky-jerky all over the place time-wise, but we slowly get the sense of the Doctor figuring out what events lead to uh, this sort of time loop happening and the attack of these alien spiders, which invade this sort of royal ball. And he, as he winds up mending the relationship between these two sisters and uh, repels the spiders in a process that I can't even remember how to explain. But this is less about the story itself and more about, um, yeah, just the very interesting way it's told.
1: Yeah, I think that's it exactly. So um, just sort of for the inevitable um, box ticking exercise, this was a, an extra off the back of mm-hmm. the main range release, The Death Collectors. Death Collectors itself is not a particularly fantastic story, which is why we're not covering it, oh. um, but Spider-Shadow itself is, is definitely worth a listen to. I think of the four stories that we're covering this week this is probably the one which is the most complex in terms of its construction I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say um, and it was really lovely to revisit Sylvester McCoy, we were just talking before we started our recording about how long it's been since we've we've covered a, a Sylvester McCoy story and it was a lovely chance to kind of re-engage with the Seventh Doctor, he gives a really gorgeous performance here I, especially like the, just even before we get the opening theme tune he has this time in, by himself in the, the TARDIS when he's talking about death, and it's just that it's that exact thing that Sylvester McCoy does so well. He's he's got that kind of melancholia about him, and it's very kind of atmospheric and lonely, but it's not depressing, and it's just such a lovely performance. And then once we kind of get beyond that, yeah, we get into all these kind of time slips and the way that uh, the story is told non chronologically. It's um, it's just a really smartly constructed story and and I don't know how much like I think if you told this story in a linear fashion it might not be the most remarkable doctor who story we've ever heard but it's not told linearly and um, and it does really add something to the story the way that we find everything out here
0: yeah it's i think just the construction of it is so well done because like I said there's no real linearity story the doctor sort of plopped into the middle of it, and we're sort of plopped in the middle as well. And we don't see everything the doctor sees. He references sort of things out of joint as well to us, even though he is also experiencing things in a non-chronological way. So we just sort of see different snippets as doctor, as the doctor is in different parts of the time loop. And he's trying to figure out why he's jumping around, and we're trying to piece together what events happen in this sort of loop as well. So it's, yeah, it's a very confusing story to keep track of. And I think, to the credit, there is still a thorough line here of trying to piece things together. Scenes repeat in a certain way where each time they repeat, you can pick up on the differences and you can see how things have progressed in that sort of nonlinear fashion. The Doctor has figured out more rules of how this world works. The Doctor has increased his bond with the characters. The other characters start to sort of remember more in a subconscious way. And I think that leads to some really great interactions and some really great moments of like, aha! It's like you said, this isn't if told linearly it's to be a very underwhelming story, but that's I guess that's not really the point. It's much, very much sort of a puzzle story to figure out, and I think in that sort of sense, it really works.
1: Oh no, I completely agree, and I think one of the things that comes across here is that way that the Doctor is able to figure stuff out. So we get a proper insight into the fact that he's not somebody... Like, if this was, a say, a companion or a human character that was going through this, there's no real sense that they'd be able to figure out what's going on. But we get to see how intelligent the Doctor is in terms of the way that he figures out what's going on here. But we also get an appreciation of the fact that the way that he kind of intersects with time, if that's not too pretentious a way of, of putting it, isn't the same as as um, the other characters in this play, the the two princesses uh, Louise and Allison. Um, you know all the other characters that we have here. They they can't quite manage to grasp it, but the Doctor has a different relationship to time, and and he's able to figure stuff out about the about the the, the blood flower, about the way that he has this kind of uh, discontinuous time frame going on, and it's it's very unusual to have a story which is able to kind of take advantage of that and really show us, not just tell us about how the doctor has this different relationship to time. And it never, it's, it's not a confusing story in the sense that you can't work out what's going on, but it, it's got just enough confusion in it that you feel that you really are learning along with the doctor as well. So you're being kind of pulled through this sort of, yeah, this broken up narrative um and the way that the doctor is just slightly ahead like you like you mentioned like we don't get to quite see everything the doctor sees um and that kind of puts the listener in the same position as the other characters within this we don't quite have his advantages um and it's just it's such a i really love the way that that kind of construction works with the doctor here
0: yeah i really agree i think it's just nice to sort of have him be this sort of figure that things sort of bounce off of. And like Sebastian McCoy, I think there's such a great role, like you said, with bringing that sort of melancholy to it and having these very sort of like nice sort of gentle interactions with these characters. He's such a good doctor to put in the center of all this. Um, I really like the relationship he sort of strikes up with these two princesses and uh, like, especially with sort of Louisa, how it's this sort of friendship that happens non-linearly where he knows they will become friends at the beginning because he's been through the loop before and he has the sign of a friendship, but then she doesn't remember that part. And so you see this relationship sort of build and rebuild over the course of the story. And I just think that's just such a great way to sort of tell it. It's like these character motivations are very simple. You have Louisa as sort of the apple of everyone's eye, but kind of oblivious to that and then the jealous sister. But the way it's, we all have to piece it together like a puzzle, just the pieces are on the floor and we're sort of putting it together as sort of the picture becomes more clear. I think that really, like, sort of helps make it more fun, almost, to sort of experience this story. the story. Is to sort of piece together all these character motivations and find that sort of common ground to reach at the end.
1: Oh, no, and I, I think it's really important to, uh, draw attention to that conclusion because i think particularly with this doctor it's very unusual to have sylvester mccoy stories or seventh doctor stories which end in a way that has been resolved um, positively rather than negatively if you know what i Mm -hmm. mean so the whole idea here is that the whole resolution is based around the idea that um the, the, the 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 princess which is always the one who's told that she's the prettiest or most beautiful or whatever reaches out to her sister to say actually so are you and it's a constructive ending not a destructive ending that's so unusual for this Doctor and it's so nice to hear that be the way that this story is resolved, you know, and again for, for this Doctor, you know this isn't the grand, we, we there's a sort of offhanded reference about the fact that the, the Doctor is friends with Death which is a hangover from the New Adventures and all that kind of stuff, but broadly speaking this isn't some great sweep of history there aren't civilizations hanging in the balance there aren't you know universe ending threats or, or and he's not playing chess 15 moves ahead it's just the doctor involved in what is for him a comparatively small scale story which he's able to resolve yeah as i say constructively rather than destructively and it's there's something terribly refreshing about that for all that this has its kind of um chronological uh, sort of slipping and sliding around and sort of the nature of the, the the spiders and the the blood flowers and all this all these kind of moving parts but in the end the conclusion to it is this sort of relatively simple breaching of of a, the relationship between two sisters who, who who are you know able to resolve their differences and that's ultimately what resolves the, the the story that's that's such an unusual resolution for this doctor and it's it's just incredibly pleasing
0: yeah i I think it really earns that happy ending as well. I mean, we see a sort of relationship with the sisters as it pieces together. We also sort of see it sort of resolve in this outside of time way. And I think, uh, I mean, it is very, the solution offers very simple. Just have Louisa tell Allison that she is pretty and of value. And that's all it really takes, which is all we really have time for in a 30 minute story. That's also jumping around in such a complex structure, etc. But yeah, I don't mind such a simple solution because it just—I think it resonates at just the right level. And there's enough going on that it—it's all you really need.
1: Like a simple,
0: you know, a complex constructed story needs sort of a simple core. You can't or else you get too unwieldy.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think I think I'm right in saying this is actually the longest of the four stories mm-hmm. that we're covering. Like two of them are twenty minutes or twenty-two minutes. So even as this is the longest story that we have to cover this week. You know there's still that that sense that there's you know a very compressed time frame and this is i'm I'm sort of gonna make this observation about all four of the stories that we cover this week but I'll sort of kick it off here and then you can just assume it applies to the other ones is It's amazing how much is stripped out of this story in terms of a standard Doctor Who story, and it still functions so we don't really know where this is set we don't really know when this is set we don't really have to spend a lot of time exiting the TARDIS and exploring 17 corridors that are all conveniently the same and uh, blah, blah 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 you know all the kind of basic standard fittings that you would get if this was a maybe a four-part main range story or, or whatever it was everything is kind of um, paired back to its most simple so we get I think that opening scene in the TARDIS is like forty-five seconds long or a minute long at the outside. That's all we need in terms of the setup. Then we get the the, the uh, theme music, then we're straight into the play. So you know, for a thirty-minute play, that's that's all the setup that we really need in this case. Now, sure, of course, it's going to be more confusing with the the different uh, sort of chronology which is going on here. Uh, but that won't be true of the other three stories that we cover this week. But it is just. I think it's amazing and also really impressive for all four of these stories how easy it is to sustain that when all the kind of traditional trappings of the doctor who story are kind of basically reduced to almost nothing
0: right yeah it's it is weirdly a stripped down story outside of the structure and i think that is again like to its advantage
1: yeah no it 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 definitely is and and part of that simplicity in terms of the setup means we can spend more time exploring you know, the the, the discontinuous events and and, uh, you know, just kind of getting into the the meat of what the story is Um, and really that is just a central relationship between between the two princesses Um, but that's all it needs and that's great. Mm -hmm. One of the most pleasing things about this story is how sort of clean it is in terms of its setup, in terms of its resolution, and in terms of how little baggage there is. And and yeah, that's definitely something which is going to be true with the other three stories that we discussed as well.
0: Before we move off Spider-Shadow, I just want one last note. Um, I just really like the performances. And we talked about Sylvester McCoy, but uh, we have Katrina Olsen again, who is the headhunter in the eighth doctor adventures and as Allison, And she, I think she is such a great job as a sort of more sniveling kind of pathetic creature you still have a little um, sympathy for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Carol Fitzpatrick is her only Doctor Who role is Louisa. I, she's fantastic, I think. I love her chemistry with Sebastian McCoy and I think they have such a good little relationship.
1: Yeah, I have no idea why she's never worked for Big Finish again, but it's a great shame. She's she's clearly an asset here. And even sort of the relatively minor roles, they've all, mm-hmm. they all come together. It, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a very well-cast story for, you know, comparatively, and we've got, what, a half a dozen speaking characters, which is a reasonably high number for a story which is so short. But everybody does do a really, uh, uh, you know, great job with, with what they're given.
0: I think that wraps up our thoughts on Spider's Shadow, so I guess that brings us to Urgent Calls. And since I'm the one talking now, I guess I'll throw it to myself for the description. Um, urgent Calls involves uh, the Doctor being called randomly by Lauren Hudson, a woman living in England in 1974, and she he is able to inform her of an alien attached to her spine and saves her life that way as she, she goes to the doctor to get that checked out. He also realizes that accidental phone calls are happening all over the world. Uh, people are calling other people, getting the wrong number, but the wrong number winds up, bringing them good luck. After Lauren is connected to the doctor a few ways through this, they wind up working out the details of this virus causing this and work together over a series of phone calls to sort of get to the bottom of what's happening. Meanwhile, Lauren experiences good luck as she wins a vacation and connects with an old friend, but realizes that, and admits towards the end, that the doctor has to solve this, as that is what he does. And the story ends on a kind of melancholic note as... Lauren abruptly just stops hearing from the doctor again and we end with her writing a letter, hoping to connect with him, and that's never resolved.
1: Fantastic, thanks. Um yeah, this is um this is a lovely little story. I, I, I adore this story. So there there you go. There's not gonna be any big surprises about what I think about it. I think it's such a such a great use of the sixth doctor. It's the opposite of the story that we've just uh spoken about. Um, in the sense that this is just a two-hander. There's only two characters in this, Mm -hmm. which is the Doctor and Lauren, whereas the last story we had half a dozen characters in in basically the same length of time. Um, So it's really important that we have uh, two really convincing actors who are able to make this work. And this just, once again, I know we keep saying it, and I know that it's kind of like the default assumption now, but just Colin Baker is so good. You know, Mm -hmm. he's so great in this. and um, it's a very um it's a much more personal performance that we get I think um both from Colin Becker and from from this doctor, you know, the the whole thing about the sixth doctor is is he's such a, a kind of larger than life figure, but this is this is a much more kind of constrained performance i don 't mean that negatively, quite the opposite. I mean it as a positive. I love the way that that colin baker is 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 keying into to the much more personal aspect of this doctor, one that we very rarely get to see. We certainly almost never get to see it in terms of his TV performance but but even with his uh, big finish performance it 's rare that this is the, the the aspect of the sixth doctor that gets focused in on and it 's so nice to have this doctor have that kind of very personal very kind of intimate relationship with another character. That uh, that is allowed to kind of flourish across the this, this story. And again, it's a very short story. So it's necessary for that relationship to be, to be built and to feel genuine very, very quickly. And it does. And it's one of the things that really, really makes Urgent Calls such a success.
0: Yeah, this is pretty much the reason we're doing this a sampler's platter of short stories, Urgent Calls. This is easily my favorite of these four. This is one of my like, just favorite little Big Finish stories. And, I mean, of course, we also should talk about the Virens in their first appearance, and this sort of leads into that in a roundabout way. I, mean, I also want to talk about Spider Shadow, but really, Urgent Calls is... I, I'm just so happy to get the chance to talk about it. I love this story so much, and I got a chance to re-listen to it as well. Yeah, I think it's just so lovely, this sort of examination of a relationship between what happens with someone who's, like a side character in the Doctor Who story who is just there on Earth experiencing alien phenomena. The Doctor enters and exits their life. And what happens? I think that, I mean, certainly this isn't the only Doctor Who story to cover this out of the thousands of Doctor Who stories produced. I think Blink might be the most famous that sort of covers similar territory. But I just love how this is constructed. These little phone calls, this little building of the relationship between the Doctor and Lauren, and then this just, especially this ending, which is just this very callous way it's just sort of ends on, callous on the Doctor's part, it's just such this hint of melancholy that you don't usually get from Doctor Who, not this sort of strain with so many unanswered questions ending on this comma rather than a period or exclamation point. I just think it's such a bold choice and... I think it's just especially sort of gets that emotional reaction after you've had such a lovely last like 20 or so minutes with these characters
1: oh it definitely is and that relationship is is so important to the way that this story works so i ha- the sort of the next thing i have to do is sort of mention kate brown um who's playing lauren she does such a good job and she establishes that rapport with um, Colin Baker uh, very quickly but it's a kind of it's a hesitatingly developed relationship in the actual play, so it does take a little bit of time for them to sort of build that trust and build that understanding um, and that's such a such an important part of why this play works well Caron hasn't done a lot of stuff for big finish, but you know listening to this it's hard to imagine why not because she's really really good and she's she's got that kind mm-hmm. of that sort of, I was going to say everyman, obviously not every person Um, kind of, you know way about her, which really makes you feel that it is just you know, it's a normal person who's getting caught up in the adventure and um, it is that idea that, you know, she's not or, or the, the character, I should say uh, is not somebody who's going to be the main focus of what it is, you know, she is Incidental is probably too strong, but she is kind of incidental to the main story. You know, she's not what the doctor is all about. He's somebody he she. There, yeah, try that again. He she is someone he keeps encountering during the course of adventure he's having, but he's having it kind of over there. And Lauren's involvement is something which is is sort of um, a little bit off to one side from the doctor. That's a really unusual. Perspective, and it's so. It works so well to have it. It's it, it's something which is really kind of unique about this story.
0: Yeah, I, I think that is so wonderfully unique. Um, and I just love just the little snippets we get of her life, and it just comes out so organically. Learning that she's a telephone operator, learning that she is sort of has these bigger aspirations that she doesn't know if she can attain, and just this sort of mundanity of the sort of good luck she gets it's not earth-shaking she just gets a free vacation she connects with an old friend uh the biggest thing is of course the first call which leads to the doctor saving her life by getting something checked out but then you get those conversations about how this encounter with the alien has made everything more boring and that's She's sort of woken up to sort of this more greater understanding of the universe, but is still sort of stuck in her ways. And the story just sort of leaves her there, which again gets back to that sort of hint of melancholy that sort of runs through the whole thing. I just think that's just sort of this fantastic way of going about it. Yeah, it's so interesting to see someone on the margins of Doctor who story who he has such a profound impact on. And then she is just one of thousands of people he meets a year who he has a similar impact on but this root it so firmly in Lauren's point of view, it just really sort of flips the script on this sort of typical Doctor Who adventure.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And um, I think what's interesting about that perspective there is that I think Doctor Who's once or twice tried to do something similar, but it's very rarely about kind of uh, just... Like a, a, I hate using the word ordinary, but like a normal person so sometimes there's been like a couple of novels who have written which have been written from the perspective of like a unit soldier who got caught up in an adventure or something mm-hmm. like that you know um and that's fine i mean those those things are absolutely worth exploring you know in the way that you know like a yeah a unit soldier might see the doctor as an angel of death because every time he turns up all his mates get killed or whatever you know that that's fine that's a really legitimate thing to explore but it's it's very unusual that we get a story which is just it's just some person. It's just that there's no reason for them to be involved. You know, if you've got a unit soldier, yeah, what's going to happen? They're going to get involved in the alien invasion of the week story because that's what unit's there for. But that's not what happens in this case. It really is just somebody who coincidentally gets caught up in the Doctor's world and, there's, and okay, we get, the, we get the explanation for why these coincidences are happening, but it's just it's just that. It, 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 it just is. And the fact that it's prepared to stick the landing on the, the melancholia and and how, you know, the doctor's life has simply moved on. Again, that's not I mean, that's basically what school reunion is, you know, that's what Sarah mm-hmm. Jane's experiencing. Um but Sarah's had that experience of being with the doctor and then you know, years and years with, with the fourth doctor and then having it stopped. This is this is as far as we know, Lauren's only a time shaver um comes into contact with something which is alien or which has, you know, expanded her understanding of the universe, if you like. Um, it's one of those, it's so It's so. kind of heartbreaking that this is all she gets. And um, again, I just kind of, I really want to praise the performance because it, it needs to have that, that anchoring. We need to care about Lauren in order for that to work. And we do. And again, that's down to Kate Brown. She does a great job of bringing Lauren's kind of, vulnerabilities across and 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 how how tentative she is in explore like the way that she asks the doctor eventually are you alien and it's incredibly kind of tentative as if she's kind of reaching out for a, a kind of like a live electrical wire she thinks is going to electrocute her but she finally finds the courage to do it and she starts getting these answers and then it's taken away from her again not through malice not through uh anything other than well wow, that's that's just the way the cards were dealt this time out. It's 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 kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking, but it's also mm-hmm. it's a lovely piece of writing.
0: Oh, you say heartbreaking? I definitely teared up at the end of listening to this story. <laughs> it was it was very moving, and I I just it just works so well. And we're talking about how the perspective of someone who, after uh, meeting the doctor, how it's sort of like scoring in that way. I got a lot of also similar advice, like. In any other story, this would be Lauren's uh, chance to jump on the TARDIS and be whisked away from her boring job as a telephone operator and uh, small-town dreams and see of the universe. And instead, she's just left where she is. I mean, like, it is very much shades of Rose or Donna in sort of her circumstances. And, and in terms of how she talks about things becoming more boring and how she now sort of has this sort of longing for something bigger and some more adventure. And she doesn't get the opportunity. She's her last conversation with the doctor. It's she even thinks she'll talk to him again. And you have a little bit of so sad music playing in the background that might tip you off, but otherwise it just feels like another sort of conversation they have. And he says, he'll keep looking into it. Then he hangs up and then she gets her next call and it's the person she was actually trying to ring. And then she gets, then she writes the letter and then it's over. And, I mean, I, we talk a little bit when we cover bad stories about, oh, if we were the writer, this is how we do it differently, which is, and we try to avoid that because that's the least terrible way to approach a work and not very helpful because we're not writing Doctor Who, but we're not writing those stories, at least specifically as well. But it's like, this is sort of the flip side of it. This story is so good. If I was writing it, I would have that sort of tearful end scene with the Doctor and Lore. and I had them connect one last time and put the period on the story. That's This is what my natural inclination, I think I would do. And so that's all of the more props to Eddie Robson for taking the road I would not think to travel, which is to just leave us in that sort of, like I said, the comma at the end. And you can imagine maybe that letter does reach the doctor in an optimistic way. Maybe he does write back. Maybe they didn't have a correspondence. You're left to imagine however optimistically you want, or pessimistically she just never hears again and she's just trapped in her life. But it's all, it's open to interpretation and even if it sort of leads in a more pessimistic direction. And I think that's a great sort of state to sort of capture the audience and I think that's such a satisfaction and unsatisfaction sort of weird way of putting it.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important that you mentioned that thing about uh, her posting the letter. Um, because it is that, that sense of, well, I mean, you never know, it's the Doctor. I mean, you, you just don't know. Maybe, again, maybe, you know, I don't know. It's just, it, it does leave that tiny little chink of, well, maybe. You, you just don't know. Maybe. And that's so important because it doesn't leave it completely one or the other. Um, what I kind of, what I like about this, sort of zooming out slightly, is the fact that we never return to Lauren. And, you know, as we've mentioned many times in the podcast before, Big Finish are very guilty of exploring every, every, every possible permutation of every character and every angle and every story and whatever. Not always uh, to the best advantage, shall we say. But this is it. This This is Lauren's one and done. And that feels right for this story as well. I don't think it... I think it would undermine this story if, you know... Two years from now, suddenly she became the Sixth Doctor's companion. Sixth Doctor's got loads of companions now that have got nothing to do with the TV show. So it would be easier, you know, for uh, the Sixth Doctor to suddenly land and oh hey, it's it's uh, Lauren. You were the person that I spoke to in that one obscure release from like fifteen years ago or whatever. You know, um, but it isn't. This is a, this is a one and done, and it should remain that way. We shouldn't ever visit Lauren again because I I yeah I really think it would undercut the ending of this story, which is. Mostly closed, but also just ever so slightly open ended. It's a it's a really it's a really delicate balance, and like you said, <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Robson nails it exactly. So uh, it's just it's a perfect ending.
0: And I just want to, on a concluding note, I just want to note that this story is uh, available for free on the Big Finish SoundCloud page. Uh, they just have it all up there, and I think that's just which is a testament to they realize how good it is. As like just this nice little sampler to get you into big finish. So if you haven't listened to Urgent Calls, I really recommend uh getting uh finding it on SoundCloud. I mean, you don't have to listen to what's I went for us. IED, yeah. Uh or Exotron (laughs) is one of those two is the three-part story attached to it. Neither of them are ones I remember that well. So yeah, Urgent Calls is just this little island of uh just really excellent quality. And it's uh, just yeah it's just fantastic
1: yeah I can't really I can't really add anything onto that I mean I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast and that we're in our 140 something or other episode now you know you probably have got into big finish at this stage but like if you haven't had the reason a uh, reason to listen to this story um, or I mean it's easy to pass by because it is just this kind of little tagged on release but it, yeah it, it can't really come with a higher recommendation from either of us I guess uh, mm-hmm. so I think we can probably leave that one there. And uh, move on to our third story of the episode. So that would be Urban Myths. Uh, Kev, uh, would you care to give us a summary of this one?
0: Sure. In Urban Myths, uh, three CIA agents, that is a Celestial Intervention Agency, uh, are trying to apprehend the Doctor for crimes against humanity committed on a planet that was ravaged by war as... As they tell their story of the Doctor and the many violent acts he committed, they realize something is off about it. And as their very familiar waiter keeps serving them food, they realize that their stories they're telling are, increased, are actually exaggerated. And as they slowly come down, they realize the Doctor is actually saving the planet, not causing more destruction. He was saving it from a virus that was causing general rampagement and is also, in turn, saving the CAA agents with the food he was preparing delivered by Perry to them from a virus that made them uh, exaggerate stories. And they realize they've been cured, the doctors are no wrong, and they're on their merry way.
1: Fantastic, thanks very much. Well, I think it's probably um, fair to use one word to sum up this story, and that word is Rashomon. It's, it's mm-hmm. different perspectives, um, and the more we sort of explore those perspectives the more we understand what goes on uh, the other thing I will say especially as we're doing the last two stories here um, is you know we don't often talk about Nicola Bryant because we don't cover that many well firstly mm-hmm. she hasn't done that many stories all things considered she really is very good when she gets going when she gets good material to get her teeth into oh. and she's just great here yeah.
0: Not to tip the hand of the next story either, but she is so good in these oh, two yeah. stories we're talk about. She is fantastic. And uh, yeah, when she gets when she and Peter Davison play these sort of evil versions of themselves, it's it's just a riot. It's so good. And I, I mean I thought the one word you're going to say instead Rashomon was gonna be silly. This is such a silly story. It's just this nice little breath of fresh air. We talk about how Big Finish doesn't quite do comedy so well, but I think. In these sort of, this is 22 minutes, if I remember the runtime exactly. It's like a it's like a very short story, and it just gets in and out. It has one conceit: what if people were telling the wrong stories about the Doctor and Perry? And it accomplishes that with plum. and then you just you just have these great performances from the three Time Lords and their sort of paranoia. Yeah, like you said, a great Nicola Bryant performance, both in the sort of story, outside the story, is just this very sort of hint-hint-wink-wink nature as she's sort of just serving the food to them. And and then, like you said, in the stories, it's just so funny to see them so heightened like that.
1: Yeah, and I I think it's interesting what you say about the sort of comedy story, because that's the thing. This isn't really a comedy story as such, especially not the sort of... Clunky bang bang a boom sort of comedy story. It's just it's just a very kind of light hearted piece. Um and Big Finish are much better at doing that than they are sort of, you know, straight out comedy. And it's something that Nicola Bryant really excels at. She's really good at doing that kind of light comedy. And I I was thinking about this both listening to this story and, and the next one. I don't know that there is a companion in Doctor Who history that has had a more miserable time than than (laughs) Perry. I mean, you know, quite apart from ending up being married to Brian Blessed, which is a whole thing, you know. um, You know, she always ends up being this kind of rather uh, abused is maybe too strong, but, you know, it's a character that's really put through the ringer. She gets a lot of stuff thrown at her, which is, you know, deeply unpleasant. And so it's really nice to have a story that features Perry where she isn't having you know the worst parts of the universe thrown at her where she gets to be kind of light-hearted and playful as she serves the meal to these unsuspecting time lords where she she gets to have the comedy wah wah kind of ending as she has to work for another week in the restaurant or whatever it is you know it's that's such an unusual use of Perry but but really Nicola Bryant is so great at being able to do that kind of that kind of very light kind of uh yeah, comedy or, or whatever. And it, it makes the story work well. And, and, you know, Peter Davison will go on to have quite a lot of stories which are, are in this kind of vein, like Fanfare for the Common Men and, 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 and Cuddlesome and all those kind of stories which are going to be coming up at some point. So he'll get to do a lot of that stuff, but Nicola Bryant just never really does. And it's such a shame because this story is such a good demonstration of why... Um, writers should try and think outside the box when it comes to that character. Don't keep using her in this kind of oh my god, here here she is being abused by yet another pervy old man in the universe. That was mostly what happened to her during the T V show, you know. Um, you know, just give her give her stuff like this to do. She's really, really great at it.
0: Oh yes, I mean yeah, she is absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I, I have nothing else to add beyond just more praise. I mean and the fact that she's stuck working with that accent. <laughs> Even still to this day, uh, she's found such a good way to, like, really flesh out the character of Perry. Um, yeah, I guess now is the time to sort of transition to, like, my one major problem with this story, which is that it's almost in the wrong order. Uh, the It's so front-loaded with the most—it's kind of an unfair complaint, because by the nature of the story, it's about these Time Lords being cured of their paranoia, so, of course, the first one's going to be the most ridiculous and then slightly less ridiculous and then what actually happened. But, man, the first ridiculous story is so funny when you have the doctor <laughs> pulling out a bazooka and shooting people and and him and Perry just sort of doing these cruel one-liner snipes at each other and the hapless controller of the planet. And it's just so silly and it's great. And then... The next one, has yeah, a great bit of business with the cricket ball being thrown at instead of the bazooka, but like already it's just less heightened, and so it's less funny. And it works for the story. I think it, it resolves fine, and it's a little bit of an aha moment at the end when the doctor comes out and explains everything. But yeah, it, the, the sort of deflating structure, I think, doesn't work to its advantage as much as the traditional comedic escalating structure would. But I don't know how you'd square that with how the crux of the story works.
1: Yeah, I don't know that there is, but I'm also kind of fine with it. I, I yeah. think the story kind of gets away with it. it. It doesn't undermine anything. But yeah, like that that first time through the story, when when the Doctor's shooting air cars out the sky and all this kind of stuff it's, it's terrific fun, and you can just you can hear how much Peter Br- uh, Peter Davison and Nicola Bryant are are kind of enjoying sort of relaying this uh, the, the, this kind of ridiculously outsized version of their characters and that's that's kind of what makes it um so much fun and like we haven't talked about the other characters uh that much there's not a lot to them they're sort of fairly sort of fairly standard but they're all kind of funny and they're light hearted and um you know a bit daft and it, it just all kind of it just all kind of works and uh, i think of the four stories that we're covering this week this is probably the the most slight, but I don't mm-hmm. really mean that. It sounds like an insult, and I don't mean it to be insulting at all, because I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed all four of these stories. And and this one is just yeah, it's 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 another breath of fresh air. It's just it's so nice to see the Doctor and Perry having like a light hearted, easy little adventure. It's it's just it's it's charming. I think that's the word I'm looking for here. I find this story absolutely charming.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And like you said, there's hemlords they're not that well developed but there's the one who's like complaining about his food there's the one who's really bad at lying there's just a nice little business for each one of them and i think that is like i said it, it adds to the charm it is a very charming slight story and uh, it was great to sort of revisit it i had sort of forgotten just how charming and slight it was and yeah it was really nice
1: Okay, well, I think, I think, as you can tell, we've run out of things to say about that one, so that's, that's fine. Um, so, we will get on to the last of the four stories we're doing this week, which is Mission of the Virons. So, Kev, would you give us our summary for this one?
0: Sure. This is another story told out of order, as Perry is interrogated by these aliens known as the Vyrons. As we learn, she was on a party on Girlista Social where she saw everyone, including the Doctor, turn into copies of herself. And in a very horror movie-esque way, these sort of memories are revealed in between interrogation scenes, and it is eventually revealed that the Virens are trying to clean up a virus that they accidentally let loose, and therefore they need to purge Perry's memory of everything related to the virus. And the only way that can be done after 300-plus attempts... Is by telling her the whole story, so she'll want to forget instead of trying to force her to forget. So that's what happens. Perishes with the TARDIS, normal, and the Doctor is just left with questions, but dismisses them.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Uh, yeah, this is. I'm just going to start straight off with uh, Nicola Bryant again. She's great here. She is, is so good at this. Um, obviously, she's doing the violence as well as as Perry. Uh, but she does such a good job. And I think this was probably the story when uh, when I mentioned earlier about, you know, what companion has been put through the ringer more than Perry. And, you know, again, she's given an incredibly hard time here for what was supposed to be, you know, this this holiday that her and the Doctor were having together. Um, it's just such a, a tribute to how good Nicola Bryan is here that, um, that of course, we retain our sympathy for Perry, Um She's doing her work as the virons as well. and she's able to give so much, I think, dimension to what is again, you know, we have an incredibly um, short running time here. Um, and there's, but this I think I like uh, particularly unlike like the last story, there's a lot of plot to cover here. You know, um, the violence are obviously going to be important sort of going forward as far as uh, big finish are concerned, and we'll talk about that in a wee bit, no doubt. But um, you know, she's just got a lot of plot to get through here. Um, and a lot of it is, is, uh, exposition isn't quite right, but she does have a lot of explaining to do nonetheless, Um, and she just does it with such, she's so accomplished. That's, that's the word. Um, and it just, it makes me want to have more and more stories that Nicola Bryant in them because she just hasn't done that many, uh, but she's so great. And I'm just repeating myself now, so I'll stop talking and let you have a go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, She is so fantastic in the story. I think it again, like I said, puts her through the ringer. But Nicola Bryant is so good at conveying that horror and just tear at everything that's going on, and this is like a horror story. Yeah, uh, even by Doctor Who standards, this is like a very creepy, unsettling story. And every encounter Perry has uh, in the flashback scenes, like just take on this tinge of like creepy, like definitely audio left to the imagination. The um, having to imagine all these people turning into copies of her. And it starts with just the subtle repeating of words she says, and every time it's just really chilling to listen to. It just it's just so effective each time, and a lot of that is down to Bryant's performance, as she's just uh, her terror at each time it happens, and like her little no no no's and everything. They're just so effective, and I mean it says something that there's three other cast members, and each one, like Doctor included is someone who's like succumb it's like these three vignettes of someone succumbing to the virus and then she has to react to it. And so I like that's the whole story is sort of centered around and each time it's just effective, especially because the last one with Lawrence, the person who like saw the Byron's coming in and then they t- they talk about their arrival for a good bit before it comes over him. And you almost think it's not going to happen. And then it catches you again. Just the construction of each of those scenes is so well done. And I think just this whole story, uh, I think the Jumping Around Time is a little, I don't know, it's not quite as effective as Spider Shadow, because it's feels like a little bit hat on a hat than the other one did. Just more, I feel like obscuring information in a less sort of interesting way. But it's definitely still part of the story. And that's just, that's just why this is not as effective as Spider Shadow is what I'm trying to say, but it still is very engaging. And yeah, yeah, it's just a very great little short story like the other three.
1: Well, yeah, it, it definitely is. And I think one of the ways that I sort of appreciate this is how gentle, it, or no, gentle is not really the right word. I like the way that the story is able to fit in to what's going on. With uh the fifth Doctor and mm-hmm. Perry, without it just being incredibly sort of heavy-handed, so we get a reference to Aramem, for example. Well, we know, okay, that's fine. We know Aramem has uh, left the series at this point, and that's yeah. that's okay. But it, it's not heavy-handed. It it's it's something which allows us to position the story within the kind of the spectrum of 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 the fifth Doctor and Perry. But it it doesn't feel the need to kind of ram at home, and that's really nice and i i think that kind of lightness of touch is true throughout this for all that this is absolutely it's really a horror story um but there is that lightness of touch about it that it it doesn't oversell what it is it's trying to do i i I think one of the most obvious things listening to this now is that idea of having a character who suddenly turns into an you know all the other characters become it is it's the master in the end of time you know in the way that mm-hmm. the master becomes the entire human race um that's fine but in 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 the end of time that's not really ever played for anything other than laughs it's it's basically a joke which is fine i'm, I'm not criticizing it for that but here we get to kind of get have the full horror of it Without it just being hit again and again and again, obviously that 's partly a function of the running time but that 's one of the things the, the, the compressed running time really forces that discipline so when we have the characters changing uh, you know when they all change into Perry and perry 's absolute you know terror at what she 's witnessing it can 't be overindulgent. it has to be this kind of compressed time frame and it, it 's so much more effective for that i think I think it 's very easy to imagine this story being one which was sort of three or four episodes long. Um, But I think if it was, it would be much less effective. We would have... Um, you know, lots of scenes with the with Perry developing this relationship with the boy that she's met on the planet. We'd have the Doctor investigating. We'd have all that kind of you know that usual sort of stuff that goes on. It's what I said when we were talking about the first story. Everything is so compressed here, and all those kind of standard Doctor Who details are stripped out. So we just get the essence of it. And the essence here is that horror story, and it's it's more effective for being. Uh, a compressed running time um, and for having all that other stuff, which the story simply doesn't need. It's all gone.
0: Right. I think that is one thing that all these stories show is that discipline to work in sort of the half hour constraints and tell these like bigger stories, each sort of in their way. I mean, you have urban myths, which sort of relishes in its short running time to just get in and out with like sort of one joke. Whereas the other three are using the running time as almost sort of this under-the-gun way to tell these more complex stories in a very compressed way. And I think each of them really benefit from that. I think it just really goes to show that not the one- or two-hour runtime isn't always good for a story. You can tell these shorter, more compressed, more focused stories that have this sort of off-format beat to them, off-format bent to them. And, yeah, I just—this is another really effective use of that. And, yeah. I guess it's worth mentioning that this is the first appearance in Big Finish audio. Of the Virens, who become really important in the main range a little bit down the line and then disappear forever, pretty much. But yeah, they were, seemed like a big idea at the time of an original Big Finish alien that would recur. And uh, three of the stories, not Spider Shadow, the other two, sort of deal with similar viruses that have been like very obscure and roundabout viruses that are sort of their doing. I think that is an interesting idea of sort of seeding this larger arc within these sort of one-shot stories attached to uh, just three-part stories that don't really bear mentioning.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's not something whereby you have uh, to listen to these stories Mm -hmm. in order to understand what's going on in the main range. You know, they they do sit genuinely uh, separate. Uh, But again, I think that separation is kind of It's kind of their strength, and like when you're talking about the uh, the sort of the running time there, one of the sort of other things I want to say about it is that uh, you know Big Finish, by their very nature, I suppose, tend towards the conventional, and I think the longer Big Finish has been producing Doctor Who, and the more we kind of approach now, as it were the more that conventionality is becoming all we get. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having like little short half hour stories or whatever, or or little format breaking approaches is is very unusual for Big Finish as it is now in twenty twenty when we're recording this. You know, the Companion Chronicles ranges are over. A lot of those kind of interesting sort of ways of approaching Doctor Who stories have been kind of stopped in favour of sort of very traditional here's a four-parter here's a four-parter here's a four-parter um and i think stories like this kind of show why that's a mistake because there's so much mileage in breaking the format there's so much opportunity to do new and interesting things with familiar characters or Uh, sort of familiar situations, you know, sort of viruses or whatever. Well, okay, that's fine. We've had, you know, loads of viruses in Doctor Who, but this feels like it's doing something a bit different with it, and it's doing it in a different format as well. And it's one of the things across all four of these stories, I think, which makes them so engaging. It's just this idea that it's it's breaking the format. It's finding new and interesting sort of little nooks and crannies to explore. None of them are using... Uh, recurring aliens okay we have the cia in one of them but okay that's that's no big deal most of it is just this kind of original approach to storytelling and i think i'm sure sure you're going to agree with me but uh, i think it just does demonstrate how good that can be for for big finish and, and for telling new and interesting stories in doctor who
0: yeah i mean even these sort of short formats, they're now there's the short trips that've been going on for a few years. I haven't listened to any of them, but they seem to just be content. Oh, we'll churn out one a month and not. Whereas with these four stories, they seem really to be like necessities of mother invention. Um, well, we have this idea, it only works as a half hour story. Let's find a three part story to tack it onto, like really coming organically rather than we gotta just. As big finish now is well, this is just now part of our format. We put out a half-hour short trip a month, and it's narrated like a companion chronicle, and that is very strictly what we are doing. And I, don't, I can't speak to the quality of them, honestly. I haven't listened to them. And if they are good, maybe uh, let us know, and we'll check it out. But, uh, yeah, it just feels a lot less organic, where I think all these stories benefited from their organicness, from genuinely feeling like I had a short half-hour's Doctor Who short story to tell... And this is the best way to tell it. So this is what we're going to figure out a way to sort of get it out there in an unconventional way. And I think the fact that, I mean, their unconventional release sort of speaks to how that had to happen. Like, this wasn't a planned out sort of thing. This was, yeah, just just came about that way. I'm, I feel like I'm stumbling from my words now, but it is just sort of nice to get these stories that genuinely feel like this is the only way they could be told.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly it. This feels like the only way that these stories could be told and it fits the format right. You're, you're quite right, of course. I should have mentioned the uh, short trips when I was talking about sort of format breaking earlier. You're quite right to mention that. Um, and of course that has become um, you know, part of the default operating procedure of, of Big Finish. These get churned out all the time. And to be fair to Big Finish, they do often feature new writers. So it is a way of trying to get people... Uh, coming in who who maybe aren't just the usual names that we 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 know and well love is maybe overstretching it but you know it's just those kind of like usual people um so that is true but it has just become default operating procedure so there isn't that sense where you know it is trying something new and they are always isolated and away from kind of the main ranges or whatever Uh, but i think yeah just sort of the very. I'll promise this is the last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll wrap up. Um, I just, I just, I want to praise all four of these stories, um, absolutely. But I also want to say thank you to you, Kev, because this was your idea mm-hmm. to do these kind of little, this little mop up of of short stories that that otherwise we would have missed because we weren't interested in covering the main ranges, and it's been so refreshing. After, um, particularly the last few weeks, um, we've been going on about stories which have either been, um, you know, part of the ongoing, We obviously we've done 8th Doctor Lucy Miller, we had Iris Wildfire, they're all kind of ongoing kind of things, 5th Doctor and 6th Doctor we haven't covered for a while, and just being able to drop into these stories. And experience them as the, as these little sort of short bites. It's been absolutely lovely, and I'm 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 so happy that you suggested it because mm-hmm. it was just it's such a lovely, refreshing, and and worthwhile thing to do. I, I can't recommend these four stories enough.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I'm like I sort of alluded to earlier. I just wanted to find some way to talk about urgent calls in Spider Shadow, and I'm and then work the Virens in there, I guess, as well as sort of more of obligation. But yeah, I'm just really glad we talked about these stories because. Uh, like i said urban myths and mission of irons i hadn't remembered so well and i'm glad they held up like the other two these are just four really solid two fantastic stories and it was just very fun to sort of clean them up and sort of i feel like they don't really get their due because of their weird status in big finish canon as these tacked on stories to unremarkable three-part stories but yeah they're all fantastic
1: and that to me, seems like the perfect summary. So I think we can probably leave these four stories for now and move on to our recommendations. Um, Kev, what would you like to recommend this week? Uh, So
0: I just finished reading all of Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. Uh, Especially, I just realized in a week, uh, at least when we're recording this, where a certain other fantasy author is really showing her hand as far as Bad politics are concerned.
1: What could you possibly be referring to? Uh,
0: I guess I should say for posterity, just in case. It's J.K. Rowling. She's awful.
1: <laughs> That's been the one.
0: brewing for like the last year and it's all out in the open now. But yeah, um, in terms of good fantasy, uh, fantasy written by women, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books are fantastic. I read sort of the first three in a binge about a year ago. And they're just these like great like little um very short fantasy novels just these adventures of a wizard named ged uh the first one deals with him going to magic school funny enough and i think is credited as an influence on in pretty much all magic school stories afterwards I don't know if it's exactly the first but definitely you see the bones there going to magic school then quickly funking out as he creates a calamity and has to solve it and then the next two books deal with like him as a young man going on an adventure in a very Dungeons & Dragons, very early, late 80s, early 90s computer game kind of vibe, uh, dungeon-crawling adventure. And the last one, as a fully middle-aged uh, archmage of the land, solving a global catastrophe that is changing the world permanently. I can't imagine why that would be re- resonant. Uh, so yeah, those first three books, A Wizard of Earthsea, Tombs of Atuan, and The Farthest Shore all fantastic as just really page turning playback fantasy. And then Le Guin took a break from the series for a couple decades, and I took a break from the series from a couple months, and came back to Tahanu, her fourth book and Best, which takes a major character from the second book who wasn't in the third, and just sees what was she up to in middle age. And for 1990, a fantasy book featuring a middle-aged woman just mostly living her life as she lives with this uh, girl with fantastical powers and but trying to hide her from a very mean and patriarchal society trying to put them down without a lot of flash or adventure to it. I mean I was reading about it afterwards. It was very revolutionary at the time, it still feels very radical now. It's just a very off the beaten path story and just very lovely in its prose and construction and words. And then the fifth book, Tales of Earthsea, is this beautiful collection of short stories. And you have the sixth book, The The Other Wind, which is sort of brings back the sort of catastrophe from the third book. Now all of your main characters are older. Uh, Ged is in his 70s and is trying to do as little as possible. And these are like the latter three books of this series are very much not the sort of heroic fantasy of the first three. They're very much these sort of, quieter more melancholic stories that deal with much more like emotional territory and I mean it really shows how much Le Guin has grown as a writer how much fantasy evolved as a genre and I think they're just fantastic it's just a fantastic series to read I really recommend uh, renting these books from whatever libraries you have if you want to check them out and then if you like them there's this beautiful volume called the books of Earthsea which collects all six of them plus four extraneous short stories, two published before the book started coming out when the world was being discovered, two published after that sort of tie-up the loose ends of the universe. And it's they're, it's illustrated as well. It collects everything in a nice, great volume. looks great on a shelf. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, the Earthsea books. They are fantastic fantasy, and I highly recommend it to everyone.
1: Brilliant. I love Ursula Legrin so much. And yet, I have never really got into Earthsea, and I can't really explain why. I've read A Wizard of Earthsea, and um, for whatever reason, a very, very long time ago, as you know, I'm catastrophically old. And I don't remember why I didn't go on and read more, because I really enjoyed it. And um, I I just worship at the altar of uh, Left Hand of Darkness, and I love the word for world is forest uh, so much, Good material that she's written, and I have no idea why I never picked up a Earthsea. So I, I'm, I'm once again going to take your recommendation very much on board, and I'm sort of trying to spend time and, and catch up and, and sort of well reread the Wizard of Earthsea and then and then sort of get into the get into the rest of the series because I remember really loving it, and I, I just I have no idea why I didn't why I never carried on and and read any more.
0: Yeah, I hope you enjoy them. I really did enjoy discovering these for the first time.
1: Uh, what do you have, JG? Well, I'm going to go a fantastically obvious recommendation this week, and that's going to be Tenet. Now, um, it's not a big surprise to discover that um, two people like you and myself, Kev, who really enjoy time travel stories, might find something of worth in a film <laughs> like Tenet. Um, it's a really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting movie. I watched it last weekend, and I'm going to caveat this. To point out that that um, we're recording this in uh, September of 2020 um, obviously coronavirus is still a thing, I live in Scotland you live in America and we have um, very different um, situations so as far as sort of um, the level of coronavirus and all the rest of it so I'm going to caveat this by saying I'm not recommending that anybody goes to see it in a theatre because um, depending on where you live whether it, America or the united kingdom or wherever we are um it's not you know you have to judge it on your own situation and how things are in in your country it was okay here i went to see it in a basically deserted theater so it was relatively safe but i'm not encouraging people to go to uh, a a movie house or, or to go to see a picture at the moment um but having said that i did and I really enjoyed this movie. Um, when we were talking just before we uh, started recording, I sort of described this as a really, really expensive Doctor Who episode for people who don't watch Doctor Who. And that's kind of how it is. I'm not going to sort of do big spoilers or anything like that. I'm just going to sort of talk around it a wee bit. But obviously, we have um, two time, two different sort of time uh, frames or time references, whatever you want to call them. We have uh, the past being attacked by the future, um, and we have characters who are kind of asynchronous in terms of their timelines. Now, if none of that is sort of hitting your Doctor Who bell, then I don't really know why you're listening to this podcast or why you would have anything to do with Doctor Who because it's so clearly in, in that kind of wheelhouse, and, and, and particularly um, one character is basically just River Song. Uh, and I'm not going to say any more than that. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, but it's just that's what it is. It's 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 River, um, and I don't mean that as a demerit. Actually, it's it was thoroughly entertaining. I have thoroughly enjoyed watching critics react to this movie. With kind of like, oh wow, da, da, da. and you know, kind of, oh that's that's uh, like, yeah, we've been doing this since about two thousand and seven. This is not a big deal for Doctor Who fans, you know, um, but it's it's a it is a very enjoyable movie. It's one of the best edited movies um, I think I've ever seen. The editing in it is absolutely fantastic. It's well directed as well. So I don't want to suggest that I'm taking away from uh, Christopher Nolan or anything, uh, but this was edited by uh, Jennifer Lame. I'm hoping that's the correct mm-hmm. pronunciation um and it's just stunning the editing is just stunning in this um like a lot of christopher nolan movies it kind of falls apart at the end a bit particularly the last 20 minutes are a little bit um incoherent it it, it, it kind of loses its grip on what it's doing a little bit but none of that kind of really takes away from it it's a it's a, a very entertaining film um it's uh it's not the most cerebral film that Christopher Nolan has ever done. Neither is it the most action-packed film he's ever done. It sort of sits a little bit in the middle of those two things. It's certainly very ambitious. Um, I want to go out my way to praise, um, uh, well, a number of people, really, um, but particularly uh, Kenneth Branagh, who's doing a sort of James Bond villain thing in it. And it just makes me think, okay, look, it's just time somebody cast you as a James Bond villain, okay? You've you, He's played this role in like so many different movies, from Tenet to Wild Wild West, to so many times, he just keeps playing this kind of slightly scenery chewing bad guy. It's always thoroughly entertaining to watch, and as it is here, he's fantastic in this. Um, Robert Pattinson continues to surprise me that he can act. I I I just can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth, but he's really good here. You know, it's it, and, and so is everyone. Everybody is fantastic here. There's there there are no weak links in the cast. Um and so that's that's my recommendation for for this week it's It's tenet again I'm not necessarily recommending that people go and see this in the theater. please make your own judgments and please remain safe and please do everything you can uh to ensure that you don't uh you don't run any risks if you want to wait till this is on streaming or available in other forms then I would absolutely um I would absolutely support that. It's not a film that you absolutely 100% have to see in the pictures, but having said that, it does look amazing on the big screen and of course it's designed to do that. It's it's always going to look better on a, on a big screen than it is in, in your house. So, um yeah, it's it's a it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie and uh, that's my recommendation for this week.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I'm seeing it tonight, actually, safely at a drive-in. So, yeah, I'm really excited to get into Tenet. It's, it seems to check a lot of boxes for me.
1: I, I very much look forward to discovering what you think about it.
0: For sure. All right. I think And that just leaves a letter from our mailbag. Uh, something quick this week, just a couple of logistical questions from our friend Jen. Uh, first, she asks that... Well, she says that she's been keeping up with the podcast and are glad we just had a Lucy Miller. Are we going to be doing the other seasons, not that we finished the first one? And the answer is yes, of course. Uh, we are going to do them in sort of the same order. we have be doing other main range of companion chronicle stuff, tackling it in chronological order that Big Finish released it. So right now we're in the middle of 2008 Big Finish releases, and we'll get to that season two eventually. And then we'll... Do season three along with the other 2009 main range releases so that's just peek behind the curtain how i've sort of organized our little uh list of potential stories to cover next and speaking of potential stories to cover next she also mentions the return of christopher eccleston and are we going to cover the stories when they are released next year and i think i can answer that definitively as of course we are definitely going to talk about christopher <laughs> eccleston uh just as we talked about david Tennant when he has new releases though now they're coming so fast because of quarantine and all uh we're starting to fall behind a bit i know the riverbox set is coming up quick and then he had the surprise release with tom baker and we have plans to get through those eventually for sure but there's just so much david Tennant to talk about
1: oh uh, yeah i mean i obviously i i second and sign off and all of that yeah we, we will definitely be discussing uh Christopher Eccleston, and I think you can probably safely assume, basically, the moment those episodes release, we will start talking about them. I don't think there's any question about that. Right,
0: yeah, that's definitely an event. Like, there's other recent releases, like, we have, uh, from a couple months ago, the latest Captain Jack, meets River, floating around, slowly catching up on River Song specific box sets. So, like I said, we have other new releases we sort of put in the queue and then sort of wait until we want to cover them. Christopher Eccleston will want to cover right away. So come May twenty twenty one. Uh <laughs> such a long way, away, but we'll definitely be covering it basically as soon as it aligns.
1: Absolutely. And I think on that basis we can probably leave it there for this week. Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us?
0: Certainly. You can send us an email at talking who to you at gmail.com. Ask any question you want, be it related to the podcast, the stories we cover, Doctor Who in general, or other interests you want us to talk about. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. I'm on Twitter at KevKoser, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more of J.G.'s writings at www.jgmacquarie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast to help other people find it.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we can probably leave it there for our stories of this week. Next week we are going to be returning to the Sixth Doctor. So we are going to be covering the Sixth Doctor and Charlie and we're going to be doing the Doomwork Curse. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. (music)